welcome you again. I'm going to put myself onto gallery view. You can be looking however you want to, but I much prefer looking at you. <laughs> it, um, it helps keep me alive, actually, in terms of liveliness of response. It feel it does not feel like being at Spirit Rock in, um, we used to say in the real, in uh, in in spatial real time, but it does feel almost like that. And what I've decided in these last several weeks is that I've been in the habit of saying it doesn't feel the intimacy of Spirit Rock, da da da, the demoralizing stories. And I began to say, something I read said, uh, think about in the middle of a discomforting thought, what is pleasant about the same reality that you're commenting on now? And the same, and what is pleasant about the reality that I'm commenting on right now is that in a certain, it's definitely not spirit rock and being there in that room, but I'm looking at people's homes and I have the feeling that everybody, at least the people with their, who are able, for whatever reason, to keep their uh, video on, have invited me into their home. And that's a very intimate thing. I see you there with your, with your, <laughs> with the cats that stroll back and forth across the video, with your bookshelves behind you, with your artwork behind you, with your bedstand behind you with your empty chair because you've gone out for a minute, but there's your library behind you. It's really like being invited into someone's home. And I've begun to really like that a lot. Uh, certainly when I go on somebody else's class and I have a chance to focus on different people's living room, I feel very uplifted, like everybody's invited me in to their home. So, so much for that. I, I, I am full of piles of things to talk about today. I'm also very much aware that this is uh, the week of uh, the the week of in Christian scripture, the birth of new hope in the form of the birth of Jesus. This week, it also happens, it doesn't happen very often. I can't remember it happening before uh, because the Hebrew calendar moves around. It's a lunar calendar. So festivals come on different dates. Uh, Christmas always comes on December 25th, but uh, you maybe noticed that Hanukkah uh, uh, came a month ago around Thanksgiving. And this is the first week that I remember where the Torah reading of the week, which comes just in order of one reading a week, starting from the book of Genesis, which started in uh, probably September. This is the week of synagogues all over the world reading the chapter one of the book of Exodus, which is the beginning of the narrative that carries all the way through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And in this particular first chapter, Moses is born. And I thought to myself, uh, I hadn't realized that before, but this year I'm reading that very closely. And I thought, this is very interesting. This is the week of the birth of what will turn out to be hope in the stories, uh, the millennially uh, prominent stories of two religious traditions that endure. And I was thinking about new beginnings 
uh, sometimes I am uh, a little bit bleak around the end of the year, especially in the northern hemisphere. It's so dark and um, people with hormonal systems that don't do well with diminished light have what's called SAD, seasonally affective depression, which as of yesterday should start going away, by the way because we have seven or eight minutes more of daylight every day. <laughs> Not appreciably more, but I know that we've come around the horn, so to speak. But it's also the week of new hope being born, and hope being born in a time of lots of darkness, when darkness means troubles, it means unclarity about what is the future, what's, what's happening, what's going to be. Here's this pandemic that's that seems to be coming back and nobody's come to a conclusion about how bad is it going to be and how bad is it that people are canceling their trips home for the next two weeks to visit family with reason i think now, how to not be pushed over the edge with uh, despair what are we hopeful for and I, think, I thought that the, the topic that, I, that is the basis of everything I want to say today is the quality of equanimity that one hopes to cultivate from paying attention. Things are one way and then they're another way. And they're one way for so many reasons. Uh, the, the smallest reason is I wanted it to be that way. That's really the smallest reason. Sometimes what happens is I, I coincides with that I wanted it to be that way. <laughs> but it's such a minute piece of the unfolding of the whole world. My friend Gil Fransdahl has, I think, uh, uh, the enduringly most attractive definition of equanimity that I've heard. He said, equanimity is the possibility in the mind of saying, of feeling, hmm, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. I love that. I just think that's so brilliant. Let's see what happens next. The, the hidden, well, it's hidden in the interstices between those words, the hidden instruction is wait a minute get a grip figure it out don't be bowled over so much by what's happening that you can't keep it in clear view don't be so blown away i keep thinking those are two expressions that non-english speakers won't be uh don't be uh overwhelmed and don't be confused by exuberance. Don't keep your mind in a clear enough shape to figure out what to do next. And he's, he, he doesn't say that in that one sentence. Equanimity is the ability to say, hmm, this is what's happening now. What should I do next? Actually, I think the most important part of that sentence is the word next. When I first heard him say that, I found that so consoling because in the middle of a big upset happening in my mind, my mind has already constructed 
terrible sequelae of what's happening. And the idea that there's going to be a next. It's going to be like this forever and ever and ever. There's going to be a next. And what will we do next? Does that make sense to you? I hope so. I, I love that. This is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I'd like, we often start with some sort of pulling ourselves together, settling down. I think, what does Heidi call it? Uh, arriving meditation. Well, I've talked so long, I've figured we're all arrived. But I didn't mean to talk so long. I mean for us to uh, settle down a little bit. And then, so let's sit for uh, just a little bit. Why don't we do um, arriving meditation in the sense of arriving in this body and arriving in this mind and being able to say, well, here I am. Okay, sit in a way that's comfortable for you. Sit with dignity, one of my teachers used to say. I love that. Because you can even lie down with dignity if your body is not able to sit up. You can stand with dignity if your body is not able to sit and be comfortable. It means be in whatever position you are, alert and awake, and anticipating. Really means anticipating with an open mind, anticipating with a balanced mind. Let's see what happens next. Let's be with the breath just for a few minutes. One breath happens, and then another breath happens, and then the next thing that happens is a breath.
as you sit and anticipate a breath, notice it arising and notice it passing away. With your eyes closed, notice the parts of your physical body that are touching something. My back is touching my chair. My hands are touching the desk in front of me. I can feel my bottom on the chair if I were lying down. I could feel my whole body or parts of it on my back. Look for those points of contact with your corporeal body and the world around us. Pay really close attention to what happens in your awareness as it arises in those parts of your body. How do you feel that touching as pressure, as pulsation, as pleasant or unpleasant? Every noticing wakes up the attention. And then notice the parts of your body that are not touching anything, like your face, or your arms if they're not covered with sleeves, or the back of your hand, if your palms are down, or your palms, if your hands are turned up. When I bring, when I let my attention rest in those parts of me that don't touch anything else, I'm really thrilled to discover it feels like I feel them like my cheeks or my forehead. What sensations? Maybe slight vibration or warmth or cool, something. I find that the awareness that this body is really a lively thing picks up my mood 
It's amazing. And not only that, there's a mind that operates through it, that thinks thoughts all by itself. They just pop up, this thought, that thought. Here's this body moving along. And here's this mind making up thoughts. For as long as we're alive, it's miraculous really. I'll let us sit for three minutes quietly and then we'll talk again. Before we open our eyes, I'd like to um, invite you to feel to whatever degree your mind has uh, a bit of peace and peacefulness in it. Normally, just from bringing attention to a limited number of things like bring your attention just to this moment just to this body, just to this breath, just to stop the bombardment of all kinds of input, pleasant and unpleasant, gives the mind a chance to settle down. 
And it's always reassuring to me to find that when my mind settles down, it has a more expansive feeling towards it. more ready to say, well, this is what's happening. What will I do? What will I do next? I'll invite you to, um, in a moment, to open your eyes. And I won't say anything for a minute. I'll invite you to look around at that time at people in their homes and offer them that blessing. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And as you're doing it, feel your own mind and heart as you bless. And really, I'll let you do that, but I think we'll, the, the conclusion to that will be that it feels good to bless. It in itself soothes the body. So when you want to, being prepared to be startled with all these people in your home, open your eyes and look at all these people in your home. And look at one person, and then another person, and another person, and say to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And then let's come back and be with each other. I think there's so many things, there's no end of things that we can say about the efficacy of blessing practice, that it's an expression of wisdom. Everybody's having a really hard time. Everybody, even the people that we think, these are my enemies. I really don't like this person. This person, I'm going to have this grudge on them my whole life. 
They, just like I, would prefer to have a mind that's peaceful. I think that's what we would once most want for Christmas, for any holiday or for any present. So I hope that all the things I have to share, which I'll start to share with you now, all keep themselves more or less connected to the theme of what we want is a mind of equanimity that stays open to wisdom in its clearest manifestation and expresses itself as goodwill. And, uh, you know, we, I can't make the whole world a safe place for everybody, but I can make my proximal world a safe place by not adding any more difficulty into it and by not confusing up my own mind. So these are some of the things I've been thinking about. And reading. I read um, um, over, the, over this past week, I read a book called The First Christmas by uh, Stephen Mitchell. And I'm hopeful I'm going to read a little bit of it to you this morning because it's beautiful. And if you have somebody that you have not bought a present for, I hope you will rush out and buy it because it's beautiful. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit or I'm gonna tell you about another book by Stephen Mitchell. You know, Stephen's my good friend, so I don't wanna sound like I'm just publicizing Stephen's books. But the two favorite of mine of all of his are this new one, The First Christmas, and Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness, which was two years ago published. So I'll talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about last Sunday's New York Times. Um, and uh, I don't know, I'm thinking, about, I think I won't show you this picture because it's too terrible. And I I think um, that, that the truth, the, the expression, a picture is worth 10,000 words, is really true. And so I don't need to show you this picture. I'll tell you about a picture. Um, not to be vague about it, but uh, last Sunday's New York Times has the year in pictures. And it's probably, if, if you find it somewhere to, to get it in real life, it has probably, uh, how, how many pages are there? Um, there are 25, I think, at least. And... Um, maybe four pictures on a page. And uh, I thought, are these the best pictures of, uh, of, of the year? There surely was some beautiful things that happened. Uh, maybe they could have shown a marvelous picture of somebody in the gymnastics at the Olympics doing something amazing. Or they could, there must have been some very beautiful thing that happened. But all of these pictures are pictures of disasters. And some of them are of earthquakes. Uh, it uh, shows a, a, they're from all over the world, from correspondents all over the world, have a tremendous really respect for correspondents who go in there at very difficult places. And some of them are very difficult places where uh, something natural happened, that a church in a certain 
place somewhere in South America, collapsed of an earthquake while people were there to go to a funeral mass for someone who died and the church collapsed. Uh, it was a, a, the magnification of pain that happened there or uh, the uh, wake in the wake of the string of tornadoes in Kentucky. So some of them were things that people didn't do, but most of them, the terrible, terrible pictures, are things that people did. That uh, they're, they're war pictures and people in battle gear and covered with um, with rows of gu- you know bullets and guns and um, the picture that I am deciding at this moment. Not to show you because it's in front of me, and I, I, every time I look at it, I have to swallow. There's a picture of uh, taken in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, and it says Vilma Iras Piraza, 28, a migrant from Honduras, sobbed after she and her children, Adriana, 5, and Eric, 2, were deported from the United States. When journalists met them at the crossing point, they asked, where are we? They had applied for asylum and thought they were bused to a location in the U.S. Instead, they were in Mexico. Their dreams were shattered. And it shows this young mother with her hand up here in huge grief and her two disconsolate-looking children on the floor in front of her, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I thought to myself, you see a thing like this, and I'm reading the Christmas story and the phrase, uh, uh, particularly the, the, the uh, it evoked in me the story of no room at the inn, that they went from here to there to there to there. And here, I'm going to start to cry. Here are these people. I'm glad I didn't put up the picture. Here are these people, and there's no room at the inn. And here's this mother alone with her children. She's come all the way from Honduras, and she can't come in. I can't even, I'm going to turn the page, because it's too hard to look at. What kind of a world this is? Do you know this, the story that always emerges one way or another at Christmas time is, um, it's not an urban legend. It actually happened, you can look it up, that somewhere in the war, in, in the World War I, Somewhere during World War I, at some particular place on Christmas Eve, uh, soldiers in a uh, dugout uh, line uh, were some several hundred yards, I guess, from soldiers on the opposite side. And on Christmas Eve, one group of people was singing. Christmas carols in French, I suppose, and the other side in German, but they recognized their singing and both were singing the same song. And somehow they came out with white flags and they went out on the terrain between them and they played soccer. And uh, they exchanged uh, whiskey, those who had it in a flask, they, they did what people do at a Christmas party to celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace. And then they went back in their dugouts and started the war up again the next day. It's incomprehensible. I didn't believe it. I looked it up last year and the year before because I 
it, I can't believe it. And I, I had several times this fall, I thought to myself, you know, this is the first time in my life that the whole entire planet has seemed imperiled, that fighting between us and them seems like such a useless thing because we are the us and them. We live on the same planet. If you, any of the pictures from satellites do not show lines showing the mark uh, where, where France ends and Germany begins or where the Netherlands begins, everything is there. We are on the same globe and the virus does not have a passport and doesn't have to go past passport control. And the whole planet is melting in the same crisis. Not melting more in some places than other places. Some places feel it more already. But there's just one planet and there's no place to go and no country to go back to. And I'm listening to myself and I'm thinking, oh dear, my hope was to be a little hopeful. <laughs> in celebrating the new year, peace on earth, goodwill towards man, and uh, making everybody disconsolate, like forget about it, it's a lost cause. I don't think forget about it. We, we don't have that option. We don't have another planet to go to. This is it. This is it. Okay, good. So, Amiko, we don't have to show that picture. Do you agree with me? It's too awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> If you're really interested in it, you look on, in, online in the New York Times on Sunday in the year in pictures, 2021. By the way, there's no end of terrible pictures in there. I looked to see one picture of something buoyant and uplifting. And the only picture where people were celebrating was people were celebrating in the streets when they announced the verdict on Derek Chauvin. And I thought to myself, I think they, that they were exuberant about it because it, A, it was maybe revenge, and B, it was, I thought, when I heard that verdict, I thought, oh, phew, we won't have terrible uh, uproar in the street. We won't have any, uh, backlash at that decision which really clearly had to be made so i maybe it was you know so even if it was hooray it was hooray that we have been spared the anguish of having to relitigate this in the street uh and maybe it was revenge i, I don't know i think it was a relief that's taken care of By the way, on that same page, oh, I won't show you that either. On the same page with that terrible picture is a, a picture of a person sitting in, actually it's a man, in his car in a darkened parking lot. Um, I think running his motor and charging his cell phone in the middle of the frost last winter when the power grid failed in Austin, Texas. And uh, I immediately looked at that. I have my um, my grandson and his partner live in Austin, Texas. And I knew from that that the both of them 
had no heat and no light for five days. Uh, I think there was a problem of uh, the pipes freezing in their apartment as well. And and they live in a totally modern apartment, but they're all covered. They had all covered themselves in all their sleeping bags opened up and just sat through it with their dog under the sleeping bag with them. Uh, but that's going to happen whether or not we have wars with people from the uh, climate overwhelming our system. I've done it again. I've launched into something really distressing. <laughs> Let's see if I can pull it out of this. I'm going to do that right now. Let me just see. I'll fast forward to something that will uh, lift up the spirits, I hope. Okay, maybe this. Right down in front of you, see the Netflix movie, A Boy Named Christmas. I I didn't want to watch it because I, you know, I, I, I don't watch a lot of TV and I didn't want to watch another cartoon, animated, whatever. Uh, my son and his wife kept calling. They're both over 60. These are not children watching a cartoon and say, Mom, go, uh, please turn on Netflix. Listen to a boy, watch a boy named Christmas. So I did. And it, it really made me feel much better. So now I've covered my track. <laughs> Watch a boy named Christmas. The main, and at the end, by the way, it's a semi-animated uh, movie. It's not an animated movie. It's got real people acting and parts of it are clearly animated. The talking, um, uh, the talking reindeer is clearly animated. <laughs> Uh, and the flying sled is also animated, but um, but at the end, my uh, and it's uh, one of the people who stars in it is Maggie Smith, and nothing with Maggie Smith could be bad. So immediately watch that. And he said, and be ready with a pencil because you could give a whole Dharma talk on the last half hour of the film and what the, the, the sage advice that one or another person in it gives. So be ready to write it down. So I wrote down one of the things that uh, one of the characters says uh, when someone dear to them dies is grief is the price we have to pay for love. That's an interesting thing to say. Grief is the price we have to pay for love. And it's also true that in the very, very early scriptures in the Theravada tradition, one of the lines that the Buddha presumably said is everything that is dear to you causes pain. That's a really demoralizing statement to hear. When I used to teach... Um, in uh, religion classes in uh, colleges, uh, I didn't like saying that. I would skip. I would do it, and then I would skip over. And I say, really, really, what that means is that we want so much to love people, and when we love them, we love them so much we can't even uh, covering up, covering up. But I think fundamentally that's true. When we deeply commit ourselves to love somebody else. That's, it's uh, you, you have mortgaged your heart away for the rest of your life. 
doesn't mean it's agonizing. You might enjoy a long life of pleasant and rewarding togetherness, but unless you die at the same time, you deal with the loss. At that, actually, at some point, the, someone is counseling somebody, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, and says, grief is a price you have to pay for love when somebody says, this person dear to me, I, uh, they died and I still feel terrible about it. And then they say that about grief is a price you have to pay for love. And the answer, the, the asker comes back and says, does the pain ever go away? And uh, the answer to it is no, it doesn't. Pain does not go away, no, but you get used to it. And it doesn't sound like, it, I, I would change it to, you get changed by it. You get, you get changed by it. It's a really big piece for the mind to integrate. It's a big piece for the mind to integrate. And then somebody, in that same conversation, it's a grief is a price you have to pay for love. And it's worth it a thousand times over is the end of that sentence. That's beautiful, isn't it? It is worth it a thousand times over. If you look at all the, I think about all the websites where people can meet each other, everybody is looking for somebody to love. And they really want, there's nothing we want more than to connect with somebody that really will be dear to us and that we'll be checking, did they call, did they write, did they leave a message, did they do this, did they send a card, did they bring a present, did they send flowers, are they there, are they well, I haven't heard from them, what could have happened to them, all those feelings happen if someone is dear to you, and we wouldn't have it another way, we really wouldn't, I mean, there's something about being a human being that wants to love somebody very much, Somewhere later in the movie, uh, there's a moment of joy with something. I don't remember what exactly is the moment of joy. Maybe a celebration at some moment of something great. Maybe fireworks. But anyway, there's joy. And then somebody says, you know, joy is what turns into, into hope. And I thought about that. <laughs> I wrote something about that. I had some very pithy response to it, and I, I can't read what I wrote. So it was a pithy response. Joy turns into hope. I think what that means. What, what I would, I'm, I always rifle through my own mind and see what you know. What, 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 what do I know about that? That um, in a moment when my mind lifts up. Uh, the clouds are a little bit less, and suddenly you can see what are the possibilities out in the world. Uh, when last I was with my whole family, I think around Thanksgiving time, when it was really the first time that all of us had been together in the same place. And um, since a year and a half before, and uh, on the way to being together with my whole family, children and grandchildren, 
And uh, that day I was, I, I was thinking about the fact that this is the first time that we're coming together as a whole family uh, without my husband being there because he died last February. And yeah, I, it's, that, it just occurred to me that minute, but I thought in the context of we'll all come together and we all were standing around and holding hands and he won't be there for the first time. And my mind was really getting down about it. So I said, well, I'll say that to the whole group. So while we're standing and all looking around holding hands, I said, this is what I was going to say to the whole group. But I'm standing here and looking at all of you, and you're the people I love the most in the whole world, and I'm thrilled to be here with you, and I don't feel bummed out. I feel really wonderful that you're all here. So, you know, you don't, you can, can't plan in advance for the future. I'll be really bummed out. How do I know? Maybe there'll be a joyous moment, and my mind will wake up, and I'll think to myself, okay, you know, this is it. This is it. This is how it is now. Let's see what happens next. There's also um, there's also um, someone once told me I was teaching somewhere on the subject of forgiveness. It was a long time ago, uh, but this is another one of the lines that you want to remember. Uh, I was teaching about the importance if your mind is going to rest in some equanimity. This is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. Is that you need to be able to forgive what's happened up to now. That not to be mad at anyone or at life. Look what a bad rap. Well, look what a bad rap I got. Look what a bad Everything happened to me bad. Whatever it is, you need... You need to forgive not only this one and that one and the other one for some indignity that they did to you, but forgive life for having been life with this or that difficulty in it. And I taught that in every permutation and combination a long, long time ago. And I don't even remember the name of the particular person who said that to me, but I, I, I remember that person was looking more and more bewildered like I was saying something that everybody knew was true. And he, you know, called my attention. I called on it. And he said, well, you know, Sylvia, of course, you know that forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. I thought, ah, ah. I mean, on some level, we know that. But as long as we have not forgiven, we're not really free. We're carrying that around. That, you know, it comes out absurd when people say something like, you know, I have loving feelings for the whole world. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, except my uh, my cousin's husband who did this bad thing. May all people come to the end of suffering, except, you know, who, da, 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 some figure in history or in current history who is frightening to that person. That as long as you've got someone that stands in the place of all beings, I wish them well, but not that particular being. It's a it's a it's a peculiar habit because it stays there, you know, so we have forgiveness is a price you have to pay for freedom. And that freedom is the freedom to relax in your mind because it has no enemies in it. 
and it really takes a particular kind of level of wisdom. So this is the link back to why this is in the middle of talking to you about equanimity, because when the mind is filled with equanimity, it's able to see more than one particular truth. Could be this, or it could be that, or that, or that. And one of the truths that it gets, actually three of the truths that it sees, and there's a chance to mention uh, uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta, the fact that everything is impermanent, that loss and um, pain about loss or pain about disappointment is the ongoing lot that um, that human beings need to deal with, need to find a way, and that actually the Buddhist way of equanimity, this is what happens in a life, these things happen, is the antidote to that, and blessing life is really the, uh, what do they call it, it's a, the booster, <laughs> the booster shot to the uh, vaccinating the mind against um, enmity. And the third is um, interrelatedness, that everything has to do with everything else. The old uh, image of a butterfly flaps its wings in New England, and six months later there's a tornado uh, or a, a, a um, what's the word for what you have in the middle of a in the middle of an ocean, a uh, cyclone, the tornado in uh, uh, the butterfly flapping its wings off Boston is a piece of a cyclone in the South Pacific. You think, wow, really? It's not exactly. It's not exactly. It's not. But there are things that lead to other things, and because of that, that's one of those really enigmatic statements of the Buddha. Because of this, that, and say, what is he talking about? Because of what? Which? But because of things have causes of what is what it means. Nothing happens ex nihilo. nihilo. It just things happen. And they're not, don't, you know, we don't need to take it personally. I, I don't run the world. Um, there's a statement that comes along with equanimity since this, might after all be a Dharma talk about equanimity. There's an equanimity recitation that uh, I mostly don't teach because it requires a lot of exegesis of text because it sounds a little indifferent, I think. But anyway, in texts about how to cultivate equanimity, uh, one is um, invited to practice this rubric. Uh, every individual is heir to their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes for them. So when I first heard that, I didn't like it at all because it sounds like, ah, you know, it sounds indifferent. Every individual is heir to their own karma. It sounds a little bit like you know, it's not my business. But actually, maybe it's a piece of wisdom. 
heir to their own karma means you got what you deserve for what you did. And the Buddha did not mean karma in that sense of retribution. Just for that, you get this. Actually, there are texts that that intermingled with some of the texts that scholars are convinced the Buddha did not teach that local people translating and translating since it was an oral tradition for 300 years put in in order to use religion as a form of controlling people that whatever your status in life it was really maybe it's seen as one of the um oh, uh, rationales of the caste system wherever you are you that's what you're meant to be and it was not uh it it, it, there was a caste system happening when the Buddha lived. So people think maybe it was an excuse for the caste system. I don't know. But most scholars feel that uh, that's not what it means. Like you, you deserve what you got. But you got what you got because of actions that happened. You may not have made that actions, you know, that I might get. Uh, I don't know, and in, in my lifetime, I, I live on a up a hill, so I'm probably not going to get the seawater that starts to rise in California. It's not near enough, or in my lifetime, that's arising. Not going to flood into my life, I don't think. But uh, I didn't do, but whatever happens from rain or lack of rain or heat or a drought. I didn't do that, but uh, I even tried to recycle and do all the right things. But um, I think what it means is that things happen because other things happen. Those interpretations that there's a person involved and you got what you deserve, I think are misinterpretations. It's one of those instances in which religion has been used mis on what do you call it? Inappropriately, as a, a thing to wield power. Maybe I get drummed out of the core for saying that, but I don't think so. I think most, certainly most scholars agree that you're, this happens because that happens. I think of the causations that happen that cause me to be here right now. I'm, I'm in this house right now because uh, 60 years ago, uh, on our way to someplace else, uh, with no idea in our mind to buy a house, uh, my husband and I saw a sign that said by, for sale by owner, and we drove up the driveway and talked to the people. He was this wonderful, at that point, 60-year-old house. And uh, the old people wanting to move to Arizona. And they saw us as young people with a lot of children. And they said, well, how about this price? I said, it's a lovely house. And uh, they told us the price, which was ridiculously not thinking of current prices. They said, this is what it is. I said, well, we said we can't afford it. We've just moved here. We have no money at all. So we drove home. And on the way home, I happened to see a sign that said so-and-so realtors that I said, oh, that's the realtor that our friends use to get the house. Let's just tell them that 
we just saw the kind of house we really like, big house with a lot of little rooms and we have a lot of children. We dropped in and we said, we really like this, but we don't have any money. He said, well, what if, and they, we could, uh, what if the owner asked, uh, took the, you know, cut the price by this? What if it was this much? And what if down payment was da da da? I don't want to tell you exactly what it was, but for us, it didn't matter. We had nothing and it was something. And they said, apparently they said, oh, we said we would do that. They said, sign here. I don't remember that part. Honestly, don't remember it. But we signed there. And the realtor called us the next morning and said, congratulations, you've got a house. And here we were with no money. And I called my dad and uh, on the East Coast. And I said, um, it's a funny tip to tell you such a personal story. I said, Dad, we just accidentally bought a house. And I need you to send me X amount of money for the down payment. He said, how old is it? And we said, he said, does it have brass or copper plumbing? I said, Dad, I don't know if it has plumbing. We didn't look in the bathrooms, but probably it does. And he sent us the money and we bought the house and we've been here 60 years. So because of, we rode down the street, not planning to buy a house, and saw this sign and came up here and met those people who said that. And because driving home, I saw a sign and the rest of my life unfolded. And my children grew up here and my grandchildren grew up knowing this, we were here and I'm here. And anyway, my children and my grandchildren got born because I met my husband when I met my husband, who got born because his parents from different places met each other and liked each other sufficiently well to make a child and my parents as well. And uh, the two children that they had, these two families, happened to live around the corner from each other and they married each other and they made a child and that was me. But they happened to be descendants of people who came from uh, Eastern Europe in the early time of the 20th century because the situation there for Jews had become precarious and because things had shifted economically in Europe since the trade with the um, East had opened up in the decades before. So if I look back, the cause of my being here now or in this house, in this chair at this time is part of the history of the whole world. It could have so easily been otherwise, but it wasn't. And I think that's what it means, reflecting on every individual is heir to their own karma. Things happen and other things happen and other things happen and other things happen. And it's so reassuring for me to think that when what's happening is disagreeable to me. You know, that uh, <laughs> I'm trying to find some example that I, it won't be embarrassing to tell you. Um, and the, but the embarrassment is on something as nonsense as uh, I, if I you know if I pass by with my family and I look at myself in the picture of my family, so I'm I'm old and I'm in the middle of them and they're all bigger and trimmer and 
more glamorous. And I look at that and I say, little old lady. But then I think, you know, I'm supposed to be. This is it. I look like all the little old ladies. I look just like little old ladies with my genes are supposed to look like at this age. That's just how it is. Anyway, it, uh, it doesn't mean don't do anything about the circumstances because of that, this. The biggest mistake with that is, you know, it's my karma, what can you do? It's my karma, and what can I do is the only thing where I have any agency. I was, I was going to call this particular class, what can I do? Equanimity, or just, what will you tell me? I'm going to call it uh, equanimity. Uh, let's see what happens next. Then I was going to call call it, what can I do now? And then I, I said to Emiko, maybe we'll call it, what can I do now? Or what can I do now? Or what can I do now? Because it means something, each of them extra different. Or... I think, or peace on earth, goodwill towards man, everybody. That's enough of that. Okay. Every individual is heir to their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. It's not my fault. Either way, things go well and not well. We're going to have a sit some more and do a meditation of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Maybe I'll do two things. I will do that. But I want to talk about these two books just for a minute because they've both been in my mind uh, and they're part of equanimity. Uh, this book, Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness by Stephen Mitchell, the part that is the most moving, this has to do with the story in the Hebrew Bible of Joseph and the, his coat of many colors. You probably know, not everybody in this class was born in the uh, in a Western religious tradition, Christianity or Judaism. Uh, even Islam. Um, there are people whose parents were Buddhist. But people who have some experience with the Bible stories and um, know that one of the stories in the book of Genesis is that uh, uh, Jacob has 12 sons and the last one is Benjamin, who he favors and gives the coat of many colors. And his brothers are jealous not only for the coat, but for the lavish attention that uh, Jacob pays to that uh, particular child. And if you know the story, you know the story that um, he goes out to meet his brothers in the desert to bring them some message as they're traveling. Uh, and uh, he, they decide amongst them uh, when they see him coming that they're going to murder him, put him in a bed because he's, they're mad at him. Uh, for taking all their father's energy and interest. And uh, 
they don't kill him, but they put him in a pit and assume that he'll die in that pit because he won't be able to get out and he'll die if he does starve. And they ride off. Now, it happens that he's rescued from that pit by other traveling tribe that comes by and he goes to Egypt and through a long series of complicated things that happen, more karma. Karma actually means action with happenings. Uh, through a long series, he uh, becomes uh, a favorite of the Pharaoh and uh, and becomes finally the, the chief consultant, uh, prime minister kind of of the Pharaoh. And then time passes and then there's a famine where the brothers are and they go to Egypt where there's enough grain stored up because of the clear thinking of Joseph about, about what needs to happen. And the remarkable thing, remarkable part of that story is that a remarkable part is when the brothers come in to see their brother, he immediately recognizes that they're, they're, they are his brothers and they don't recognize him. And I think the message in that is that they are so disturbed by needing the grain and uh, uh, and the unspoken guilt that they have in their mind, the unprocessed guilt that they have in their mind about having tried to kill their brother. But they don't realize that this is their very brother. And at the, in the denouement of this whole book, at, at several more chapters go by, and then he says to them at one point, um, I am your brother Joseph, and uh, it's very touching. Is our father still alive? And they fall all over themselves, and it, it's very touching. And he comes to that place because he recognizes them, and in his mind, it has become so clear to him because his mind is so clear that they couldn't have done anything else that given that they, there's nothing to forgive. I mean, they did a terrible thing, but you forgive somebody when they do a crime premeditated. They said they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were doing. You know, just now, as I'm telling you that I'm realizing uh, apropos because I'm holding two stories at least in my mind this week that that's one of the things that Jesus says when he's killed forgive them father they don't know what they're doing I think every time that we go out and kill people we don't know what we're doing what a thing life is so precious and we go out and do that kind of a thing so he can see who they are because his mind has not got guilt in it and and he has forgiven them looks at them and thinks they couldn't have done anything else they are a prisoner of their karma. So that's the, that, I won't do more of this and I won't read from it either, but um, I did want for us to sit a little bit. I want to tell you about this book. This is a story of, um, of the first Christmas and it's written from the point of view well, it's written from the point of view um, 
uh, he says it in the beginning. It's a magical tale. Talks about the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel coming to to talk to Mary, but uh, he tells it from the point of view of they're a Jewish couple traveling to Bethlehem for uh, a census that's being taken. He says, I've imagined Mary as a very young woman in love with a future husband. Christian tradition turns Joseph in an old, into an old man so that Mary's love for him might have nothing sexual about it. And it sees Mary as a proto-nun who is taking a vow of perpetual virginity. Though for a pious Jewish girl, such a vow would have been unthinkable since it would transgress God's commandment to be fruitful and multiply. But the gospel stories say nothing about, in the gospel, they don't say anything about Joseph's age. As a man about to be married, he would probably be in his early or mid-twenties. If Mary loves him and wants to have his children, later they have six children together. The source of that is the Gospel of Mark, by the way. Then the announcement that she is to get pregnant with him, without him, by the Holy Spirit descending upon her, would at first seem appalling. So all of this, by the way, so it continues on. And I'll tell you the part that really I I, I have to find where it is. Uh, he tells a story about them uh, in that frame, using the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, which are the only ones that tell the story of the Nativity. Uh, and it tells a story, one chapter after another, through the point of view of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and uh, the wise men and the innkeeper and the donkey that Mary rode in on and the ox that's in the stable when they are brought into the stable before the baby was born. This part is uh, that I was going to read is through the uh, to the, the mind of uh, Mary, who is called uh, Mariam, which is the name that I guess is in the gospel. And uh, the angel comes and says, um, you're going to have a baby. He says things wonderfully. You will conceive. You're going to have a baby. You will name him. Yeshua, she smiled. It's a good name, Yeshua. It was for, short for Yehoshua, the Lord is salvation, which was certainly true. Nothing could be true. He will be great. This is Gabriel talking to her. She tried to take this in. Great? Is that what the angel had said? But goodness was what she wanted for the child. What was greatness anyway but power and wealth? She'd never known any of the great. None of them would have deigned to visit a nondescript village like Nazareth with its dirt lanes and 600 artisans and farmers. She wanted the boy to be a good man, as good as his father, a happy child, a happy man who loved God, loved his neighbors, 
and was fulfilled in his work and his family. Wasn't that what every mother wanted for her son? God forbid that he should become one of the high and mighty. But she's thinking she mustn't leap to conclusion. Perhaps the angel meant something else. Perhaps by great, the angel met, meant something else. She realized that he, it, was being extremely pain, patient with her. For her sake, it had temporarily deleted, deleted time so that like the raindrops, she was suspended in the air of her own mind. She had in her, she had all the time in the world to contemplate the angel's statements as they became intelligible. I'll read a little more. At first, each one threatened to overwhelm her, but the fear ebbed as she understood or tried to understand. Greatness, might that not refer to something other than the arrogant rich whom she had heard about from her father and had glimpsed on a few visits to Sephoris with their slaves and fine linen and silk and jewels and tinkling feet? If the child grew up to achieve greatness, as the rabbi was saying, might it not be as a scholar or a rabbi? He might grow up to be a wise man, filled with the understanding of God's ways and able to comfort his people. That would be something to warm every mother's heart. Even more touching to me is, and we won't have time to read it because I want you to say a few things, is uh, Joseph's mind when he hears about it. Because here he hears about it, and she is pregnant, and they're not married, and how does, you know, it's in, it, it's inconceivable to him. He loved her so much, but that he would marry. He was engaged to her, but he had not known her, and that he would marry a woman who was carrying somebody else's child. And he goes through, he thinks it over and over and over again, like Joseph. So maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's the other way. It must be this way. It must be that who knows what it must be. It must be that the way before me is to marry her and love her and take care of her. Uh, just like that for, it, for its own sake. And he comes to a great peace and love of her and is very gentle with her. So, and of course the baby is born and Things work out as you know it in the gospel. I'm just going to read you a few lines because this is the last uh, narrative in the book and it's the donkey talking. It's been quite a busy day here in the stable while with the shepherds coming and the wise men and the innkeeper popping in and out to see how my mistress is doing and throughout the day. Angels from every order of the hierarchy descending to take a peek at the new little visitor. They don't knock or announce themselves. They just fly in through the roof or the walls without so much as a buy or leave, and nobody greets or even notices them. When they see me, though, they nod to acknowledge my presence and let me know that they know that I know. Some of them smile, and I have even caught one of them in a wink. The smiles come from the lower orders, of course, the young ones who are working their way up through the ranks. The cherubim 
with their calves, feet, four wings, four faces, lion, eagle, ox, and man, are too exalted to greet me, and the ardent seraphim so huge that they have to compress themselves in order to fit in the stable, never take their focus from the human family, and anyway, I can't see their faces since they cover them with two of their wings. I don't expect even the slightest gesture of acknowledgement from such august beings. Still, would it be so hard to turn their heads for a moment and give me a quick nod? It's really such a pleasure. And I guess that is the last one. I was thinking the last one was the, the ox, but the ox has a few things to say in the chapter before that. But that everybody waits. Mary waits and gets over her fear and says, okay, this is happening. And Joseph waits and deliberates and deliberates that it could be this way, that way, the other way. And I think that that waiting and inner consideration and inner consideration and inner consideration allows any fear and discontent and uneasiness to go out of his mind. And then he says, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I, I just, I just loved it. I, uh, if you, you probably saw I had pages in every page to read to you, but we can't do that. We need to, uh, uh, spend a little time talking to each other. And let's sit. Uh, let me see my, let's sit for 10 minutes. And I'll start us off by saying, well, I was thinking I was going to say every individual is heir to their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. To think about that, thinking in this book is a bona fide way of meditating or reflecting. It means thinking it over in a as expansive a mind as you can. Sometimes thinking has a bad rap. Like my mind is full of thoughts. Thoughts are fine. They're not an enemy to peace of mind. Thoughts of contentment or um, gratitude or well-being or blessing are a balm for the mind. The other thing you might think or really reflect on or really practice saying in your mind and feeling with all your body is may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So we'll sit for 10 minutes.
use the next minute to think about what you want to add. Think of this as a class discussion time. What you'd like to say to add to the discussion or ask. And can you do that in one sentence or two? If you want to raise your hand with that button that's the raise the hand signal. And if you want to, write the question in the chat. Together with this intention for our own minds to settle down and become illuminated and transformed and habituated to kindness, may this time that we spent together, connected with each other, may it ripple out through ourselves throughout all our days and through everyone that we meet and talk to and everyone that we are with so that that wish for the well-being of others become the manifesting and motivating wish for all beings. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering.